Welcome to this episode of the John Henry Weston Show. May God bless you. We are absolutely thrilled to bring to you today Dr. Janet Smith. Many of you will remember her as the famous Dr. Janet Smith from Contraception, Why Not? That incredible tape, which my own life made a difference and for countless Catholics around the world, gave them not only the hope and the reason why to be faithful to the church's teaching, but also enabled them to speak intelligibly to others on the subject. Stay tuned for this interview with Janet Smith, where we will be discussing the sexual abuse crisis in the church, Pope Francis, and all the rest. Stay tuned. Welcome, Dr. Smith, to the John Henry Weston Show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, let's start as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dr. Janet Smith, if, if you may, I'm, I'll just call you Janet. It has been, uh, it's, a, it's a great honor for me to speak to you, given your history uh, in the church. And it's really an exciting one for me because it was very inspirational for me too. You were called, uh, as we've been called at LifeSite often, to handle the hard issues in the church, as it were, starting off there with contraception. It seems so. <laughs> but I have an appetite for these things. Sometimes people think I must be phenomenally courageous or something like that. And honestly, it's just that I have a phenomenal taste for controversy. And I, I really don't like to do things that aren't controversial. <laughs> so I don't know why God made me that way, but I'm glad he did. Excellent. Um, you've been, uh, for those of you who might not know, uh, Dr. Smith has been a professor at the seminary in Detroit. How long has that been going on? I think it's been 18, 19 years, 18 years. I just retired uh, July 1st. And uh, since your retirement or, or before that, when have you taken on this new interest, this new role in really getting deep into the learning about studying the sexual abuse crisis in the church? Well, I actually have been aware of the sexual abuse situation for a very long time. In the 70s and 80s, I really was an avid reader of The Wanderer and even of The National Catholic Reporter, who both reported the situation in great um, and disgusting detail. I had to stop reading it because it was so salacious. And then in the early 2000s, all the books that came out, um, Pottles and Michael Rose and a number of books, and I, Jason Berry, I read these books. And I thought, well, surely if I know this, the bishops do. And surely if I'm concerned, the bishops are. And I, I was so confident there were uh, little committees of bishops all over the United States uh, trying to figure out what to do about this situation. And then the, the crisis in uh, 2005, Dallas Charter, people were saying the bishops just don't get it. They still don't get it. And I said, oh, that's ridiculous. These are mature and good men. Surely they'll get it. And then came out the McCarrick case. And the, the, the <laughs> I say the, the veil fell from my eyes, the scales fell from my eyes. I just had a, a sense that this church is corrupt. And over a series of months, I, um, I guess like a lot of people, I was just increasingly devastated, increasingly uh, disappointed in our bishops and more and more realizing that they're the problem. Uh, they're not the solution. And I had taken a sabbatical uh, for the fall to work on some projects. 
But then I found myself very rapidly becoming very involved in just talking to people, talking to uh, victims, talking to whistleblowers, talking to people who were trying to figure out what to do. And I was getting nothing done on my scholarly projects. And I really felt that And my, I talked to my spiritual director and we both agreed that this is what God had called me to do. So I turned that into a leave of absence. And so I've spent the last year really quite um, thoroughly involved with this, hours and hours every day, uh, reading everything I can, talking to people. And I was really surprised that I was tired of teaching and not doing such a good job because my um, interests were now elsewhere. So I asked the seminary, I plan to retire next year, but uh, I asked them if I could bump it up a year and, and they were willing to let me do that. So now I'm uh, basically, I still do a lot of my uh, travel and speaking that I intend to continue that. I have other projects I want to uh, finish off, books I've got in the process, but this really is my priority. Mm -hmm. And what would you say after having looked at this for so long right now, is your, what's your take on the situation right now? The bishops are the problem. Right. And there's there's uh, there's very little effective things that the lady can do directly. Uh, uh, the bishops are not doing anything uh, or so little that it part of makes a difference, whatever it is. Any sentence that begins with the bishops ought to do X, Y and Z uh, is almost an empty sentence. Um, I don't know what they will do or can do, even can do. Uh, if we were to get rid of all the bad bishops and there are lots um, we have no confidence that they wouldn't be replaced by men equally as bad. And so that's not a solution. Uh, <laughs> so um, the solution, on that, what, what, what we do, what I've learned is that yeah, the bishops are the problem. We have to just pray and pray and pray and try to listen to the Holy Spirit and ask what the Holy Spirit wants of us. I don't think there's one single swoop, uh, any group or any anybody can do. I think with the media, I think what you're doing is of enormous importance, which is really trying to educate the Catholic public about this. Again, I, I was prepared, in a sense, to believe it, because I knew I'd read the books, I read the articles. I still didn't believe it was the extent it was. I mean, I thought, I believe Richard Sype, who said 30% of the bishops are, you know, possibly sexually active as homosexuals, uh, now I I don't want the limit of the, the sky is the limit on that number right now. Um, and I don't want to smear good bishops. I don't want to smear men who are doing the best that they can and, and trying to do what they can. But I'm afraid I think there's precious few of them. And I'm not even certain that even those who are trying to do the best that they can are doing very well. Hmm. Wow. With, with that, kind of an assessment and, and seeing this and being steeped in it regularly and all the horror that that brings, you still find yourself a Catholic. You still believe in the faith and you still love the church. What is that? Where does that come from? <laughs> uh, I'm a lifelong Catholic. I'm a cradle Catholic. I had a, um, let's say a, a reversion in my, left the church for a long, short period of time, had a reversion in my early 20s, the most unlikely of times, the early 70s. And luckily, I had a phenomenal group of friends who had also discovered our faith. And we became uh, really 
learned in our faith. We kind of had almost a, a self-designed novitiate where we read and read and read and talked and prayed. And uh, I'm going nowhere. Uh, this is Jesus's church. Uh, I don't think I can find anything like it that the church offers. It offers the sacraments. Uh, it's Jesus's church. Uh, Jesus is not surprised that this happened. He knows the perfidy of the human soul. Uh, and in a sense, it's a test for all of us. Uh, do we believe because we like our priest or like our bishop or the liturgies are at a convenient time or this is just something that's become familiar to us and we like spending an hour on Sunday morning, uh, you know, going with a group of people to worship? Or do we really, really believe that this is Jesus's church? And uh, there's nowhere else to go in my mind. I love this church. Um and I, I will go nowhere else. I, I've never even been tempted uh, to do that. I feel, I understand other people who are. I, I don't disdain them. I don't think they're stupid. But I think they really need to consider what they would lose. Right? It doesn't matter how bad the priest is. It doesn't matter how bad a bishop is. It doesn't even matter how bad the pope is. Um, the sacraments are valid. And that's what I need. I need that to live and I need that to deal with this crisis. Going elsewhere where we just um, sever me from the thing that gives meaning to my life, that, that makes it possible for me to do any of the good things that I do in this world. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And this is very interesting because I think there's so many people who have now even attacked you, you who have spent your life defending even the hardest teachings of the church. Uh, and funny enough, there's a lot of people who wouldn't defend that, who, is actually, who were actually fighting the church at the time, but they've come out now to attack you because you've dared to open your mouth on, on some of the crisis that's going on. One of the one of the questions that uh, that uh, I had for you with regard to this kind of hardship um, is what's your take now with regard to Pope Francis? Um, you you've studied you know the situation revolving around him as well, and what's your take there? Well, uh, at a certain point, and to a certain extent, I'm not totally prepared to go there yet. Uh, it's a level of um, disappointment and maybe even betrayal. And I'm not certain, I, I don't know how to process yet. I've been disappointed from the start. I was very disappointed in his initial statements that it was unfortunate there were so many people who were obsessed with pro-life issues, were obsessed with abortion and contraception. I was terribly offended by that at the beginning. I loved his homilies. Uh, I loved some of the images that he used. I, I loved his uh, calling people really to a very radical commitment. I mean, to some extent, I, I think I have at points in my life become comfortable, uh, both materially in every way, and don't think I need to challenge myself a lot more. And I, I felt that Pope Francis had challenged me. I, I loved some of his prose in some of his documents. I thought it was just, just extraordinarily um, eloquent and, and beautiful. But he has said so many things that are um, really, really troublesome and uh, very ambiguous, and he won't uh, respond to challenges for clarity. He says one thing in the morning and another thing in the afternoon, and more and more is coming out. I mean, I certainly don't think he's done the job that anybody expected him to do to help clean up the Korea. In fact, I think he's added to the problem. 
the things that I read about his possible um, neglect of dealing with sexual abuse cases in Argentina before he came, I I don't, you know, it doesn't look good. <laughs> As I said, that's a, a level mm-hmm. I'm not ready to, um, I'm not able yet to fully uh, accept. Uh, and so I'm just letting other people fight that battle. Again, thank you um, for mm-hmm. what you do. And thank you to many of my scholarly colleagues who have, um, these are people, my, my, many of my colleagues at the seminary, many of my colleagues across the United States and the world, uh, have, who have spent their whole life uh, taking big bullets for the, um, for the faith, uh, being ridiculed as being um, blindly obedient to the magisterium, as being unable to think for themselves, and have really taken a beating uh, professionally, personally, uh, in defending the Pope and defending, defending the church. And they have bent over backwards uh, trying to see how what Pope Francis has said can be uh, understood as being in continuity um, with the tradition. And uh, one by one, uh, they seem to be saying, I can't do that anymore. The evidence is overwhelming that there are serious, serious problems here. His latest, um, the latest attack on the John Paul II Institute in Rome is totally predictable and um, just devastating. It, it's one of those um, bulwarks of uh, fidelity in the in the church today. Thing that has done um, that has done a massive amount of good in educating people who are now placed all over the world, uh, very able. Uh, to advance, defend and advance the church's teaching on marriage and sexuality and other issues. And to see that that is being really quite um, violently um, destroyed, again, is extremely distressing. So I, I, my gratitude for those who are willing to take on that battle. I'm taking on another battle, but I'm sort of behind them as a cheerleader saying, you go, you go, girl, you go, guy. They're doing what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things as a as a professor at a at a Catholic college at a seminary, even your your appreciation for that situation in Rome uh, that which you were referring to about the John Paul II Institute, um, you know, it's really quite something. All the professors suspended, and then two of the ones most closely related to John Paul's own thought to Saint John Paul II's own thought, uh, particularly Professor Molina, who has now come out with a public interview. Uh, you know, Monsignor Molina being uh, so intimately involved with John Paul II in terms of his thought and study and, and, and giving that great teaching uh, to, to successive generations of Catholic young people who've been formed in that teaching, uh, now summarily dismissed and fired. And he just, in a, in a recent interview he gave to Il Folio, uh, explained how basically even the, you know, in, in previous ages, <laughs> if you will, under previous pontificates, when there were totally heretical kind of theologians or professors. Even they were given the right to contest uh, their, their, you know, being taken up for things before being dismissed. But these guys who are trying to interpret Francis, as you said, in line with previous magisterial thought, are being just summarily dismissed. No opportunity for appeal, no nothing. It really is scandalous, and I, I wish they, I, you know, a lot of us are writing letters. A lot of us are writing letters to um, those who are now in charge and trying to express our uh, concern. 
I, I, I hate to say I don't think they care. Um, I think they dismiss anybody who uh, criticizes them or even raises criticisms as being cranks um, and just dismisses dismisses us. But I'm personally I'm concerned that this um, makes the church a bit of a laughingstock in uh, the face of the in the in the academic community as large. Uh, academics are not accustomed to being treated this way. We're not just employees of a university. Um, we're a community of scholars who uh, have invested an enormous amount in personally, in career. Many of those of the people there have families. Uh, they, you know, they are, they're not living at the top dollar of anything. I've made enormous sacrifices uh, to, to defend the church and the truth. And it, you would think that in a, an institution like that, they'd be consulting the faculty about what is it that, that you in teaching here for all these years, do you find any uh, lack in the kind of education? They would survey the students who have been educated there and who are out in the field now and ask them, were you not trained uh, fully in the way that you should have been? Are there things that's, that you wish you would have been taught that you weren't? If you're going to reform an institution, you talk to the people inside the institution to find out what it is that might be lacking in that institution. But that clearly didn't happen. The, they're just uh, being treated as disposable parts. You can just fire them all and hire new people. And you say, that's not the way academic institutions work. Uh, I don't know what the accrediting um, requirements are in Italy. But surely in the United States, this would be a, uh, a lethal blow to an institution that you could just, um, you know, dismiss all these professors without any uh, justification for these dismissals. Men who perform, men and women who performed extremely well uh, in the institution. So it's um, it's extremely again just discouraging. I, I, I'm praying and hoping uh, that there will be um, some donors who step forward and say, I mean, maybe these are people who found reason not to uh, support their local diocese anymore and say, I know a really good use for my money, a really good use for my money now would be set up an organization that would reinstitute, um, call it the St. John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family and set up in Rome and hire the same people and just keep going. Um, if that could happen, I would <laughs> I'd probably, I can't levitate, but I, I hope God would give me that power. Um, I do. I, I would try to do somersaults anyway. Wow. To get back to the issue of your expertise, it's a very difficult area of study, this, this whole the, the sexual abuse crisis in the church, because there's so much lying. Uh, there's there's hiding, there's, um, you know, the, 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 there's a obfuscation of what's really going on. We saw with the original John Jay report that, uh, you know, it was 80% homosexual abuse. And yet now it, it, it seems, if you, if you listen to some, some people in the church in very high positions, has nothing at all to do with homosexual abuse. It, it has to do, uh, you know, with uh, priests taking on too much authority and power, clericalism, as they call it. Um, what's your take on that? And, and a, a sort of related question, how do you discern uh, in all of this? How do you know what to hold on to as the truth? Um, and, and how do you make those uh, determinations? About um, the sex abuse crisis. Yes, what, what you hear, yeah. Yeah, the, pattern, the patterns are very, very clear. I mean, it, it, there's uh, the, the way the priests uh, groom, 
young men, children or young men or adults, uh, the way that they groom them is pretty much the same across the board. Across the board, uh, the same things that happens when, when victims are... Uh, contact diocese, they're given the most incredible runaround. The bishop doesn't want to meet with them. Um, they are made to feel that they are causing trouble um, for the priest in the church. Um, the, the bishop points out some incredibly imprecise and misleading statement about what really happened. And uh, usually the, the perpetrator, I mean, there are some that because they've committed crimes are removed, but those who don't commit crimes are just, who commit um, revolting sins and haven't been leading a life that's faithful in any way to Jesus. They aren't in his gospel. They aren't um, ministering to people in the way that they should minister to people. They are just living a comfortable life. And usually with, with sexual misconduct comes um, financial misappropriations and lax liturgies and certainly lax teaching, lax teaching, lax teaching, lax teaching. So you have all these souls out there that aren't being fed in the way that in which they deserve to be fed by their church. I actually read, I'm trying to read everything I haven't read and basically reread things I read years ago. Just read a book recently that talked about some victims in California that successfully at one time sued on the basis of fraud, uh, saying that the church teaches one thing and practices another. And that those of us who are donating to this church are not getting <laughs> what we are support, uh, giving to. We're not getting the teaching that we're, in a sense, paying for. Oh, that's a crude way of saying it. But we're supporting a church and want that church to help us get to heaven. And it's not. Mm -hmm. So I don't, there's not a lot of people say, well, how do you believe things? And I say, well, it's really hard to start because you don't, you can't believe that men who offered themselves to the Lord and have been to the seminary and stand at the altar. Um, you can't believe that they have done the things that they're purported to have done. And then you read about these over and over again. And as I said, the patterns are the same. And before long, you start to get a nose for it. Uh, we have one here in Detroit now that seems to be fairly manifestly a false uh, accusation, as the, is the one with, it seems to me, Cardinal Pell. Um, that there's just something there that rings so wrong with the accusations that are being made and the person that we know. I know it's not unusual for um, predators uh, to put on a very different face and to appear very differently from how they are. And I know there's men who appear to be faithful and appear to be supportive of the church who are just using that as a front in order to be able to engage in the predation that they engage. I know that's true. Um, but there's right. something that you just you, you just hear it and you say, oh, if that's true, I, I can hardly trust myself anymore. If if it's true about them, <laughs> what's true about anything? Yeah. And it, it does make it so difficult because, you know, here you have good men being accused falsely and, and, and then evil men uh, being believed when they're doing these evil things. I mean, it was incredible to realize and watch, you can go and watch the old videos where the, in, in 2002, who's responding uh, for the bishops to the sexual abuse crisis? It's then Cardinal McCarrick himself. Oh, it's devastating. I thought, you know, with the, um, the sex abuse crisis meeting in Rome, that one of the reporters set up and said, you know, I was here 15 years ago 
And uh, it was McCarrick who was sitting there assuring me that um, the church was going to take care of it. And it was a problem of the past. And, you know, she said, how can you assure me that you're not another McCarrick? And I want to say there are a lot of McCarricks out there. There are a lot of McCarricks out there who are assuring this, that, that it's all over, it's all done, it's in the past. And uh, yeah, that's what we're living with. And when again, when I started to see that, uh, I had to change the whole course in a sense of, of my life and say, there's not anything I have to do that's more important than coming to grips with this and doing if it. And if it, it, it turns out that I just start, I am, and everybody knows, I started praying more. We're praying more. We're going to mass more. We're staying up and getting there earlier, staying longer, saying our rosaries, doing our, our adoration, and just praying more. I mean, most of us have thought we were, you know, somewhere between 80 and 100% um, all in uh, with the church. And now we're beginning to realize we are closer to maybe 50 <laughs> and that we've really had to uh, start praying and sacrificing and considering more and more. What, what does God want me to do in this respect? I don't think we should put those things on ourselves. We have to just keep asking. I mean, I think the most important thing in life is people to learn how to hear God's voice, how to hear God's voice. I've, I've started thinking a whole lot less and praying a whole lot more and, and not trying to figure things out. I'm trying to just let God guide me in what I read and what I, um, how I respond and who I associate with and what I do, I'm trying to listen very closely to his voice. And if he wants me to mortify myself more, I hope I will respond. I don't want to lay it on myself because I think we do a lot of stupid things, even in that respect. And so I'm going to do this. I'm going to do, do this. <laughs> okay. It's, it's only, it's only really fruitful if God wants you to do that. Uh, but that's what we all have to be doing. I know so many friends who are doing that. And honestly, I have some friends who say five months ago, well, kind of looked on the, the verge of a nervous breakdown. This was just so hard to process. And they really did yeah. the Catholic thing, the Catholic thing of becoming more sacramental and more prayerful. They look at, they actually look now to be more peaceful than I've ever seen them. It's an astonishing thing. It's beautiful. Yeah. It shows what the church is. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here we're being rocked to our very core and perhaps that is about coming to that place of uh, a, a greater purity in our own lives, a greater focus on Christ in our own lives. It, it's almost like uh, Cardinal Ratzinger uh, or, or Father Ratzinger at the time when he made those predictions, which are so famous about uh, a smaller and purer church, was also talking about the individual soul becoming itself smaller and purer as well. I, it has to happen. I mean, uh, I, I have an unbelievably wonderful spiritual director. You know, I was talking to him about how we're really getting an incredible glimpse of the um, epic cosmic uh, struggle that's going on between good and evil, that you have um, St. Michael the Archangel and Lucifer are just battling it out big time. And we're getting a glimpse of that. And, and he said, you know, he said, Janet, he said, it's happening. It's happening all the time. And it is true that every once in a while, God pulls back the veil and let us see what's happening. As I said, I think many of us, myself included, have become very comfortable. I had been, I'd actually thought the church was making enormous strides in um, reforming itself, that we had many, many more good universities, that we were, uh, turning out um, more faithful Catholics. There were many more families who were embracing the church's teaching. still proportionally small, but more, more and more. And I thought, wow, we've turned a corner. We had the catechism. We had John Paul II. We had Benedict, as far as doctrine is concerned. 
And I thought, oh my gosh, look what's happening here. And then I see the rock that's right at the heart of the church. And I said, I was getting comfortable. I was saying, you know, I could probably go to the Gulf of Mexico and put my feet in there and just read what I want to read. And the church will just, they can get along without me. <laughs> I'm quite sure the church can get along without me. But I, I really think that it, it made all of us think, again, what's more important than, again, all in 100% with Jesus and what does he want of me? I'm sure he doesn't want me watching hours of TV or surfing the internet or sitting with my feet, except occasionally in the Gulf of New Mexico. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, and I, I do think so many of uh, the people I know that are the most uh, devastated by this have dug deep. Uh, families I know of, I, uh, lots of families around here who are just reassessing everything. I have one friend who is moving away from his home right now, taking his family to a scouted around for the place that he can find that he thinks he can do the best by, he was best by his family. He had made a decision to put his kids in public schools, hoping that his family could have an impact on the school. And was saying again, how the schools have an impact on the family. He's making a very yeah. sacrificial move to go somewhere else so he can do what he needs to do for his family. Yeah. Truly heroic decisions. You know, what you said there about, uh, I'm sure it could uh, get along without me. You know what? I, I really believe it's true. Our Lord chooses not to get along without you. And so he calls each and every single one of us to, as you said, be all in, to devote ourselves wholly and completely to his love and his service of his body, the church. And uh, you're doing that, and you've encouraged many, many by your words right now to do that. So thank you for that. Um, right in the beginning of uh, our Lord's ministry, he himself chose Judas. And I can't help but think that that was sort of a, now a kind of a grace. Yes, we all know it's a grace because it led to his crucifixion, which led, of course, to our salvation. But in a way... It gave us a very early example of the corruption of the shepherds, um, which, which in a, in a way is is comforting now because we knew right back then that uh, you know you don't throw out Jesus because of Judas, um, and therefore you don't throw out the church because of the corruption of many of its shepherds. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, it, I mean, it's it is consoling. There was Judas, and there was Peter, and there are all the apostles who left um, at the moment of the crucifixion, except for John, um, who stuck close to Mary. And there's a lesson there, isn't there? Um, and you know, I I've just written a column. I don't know when it's published. Probably in the next two or two weeks or so. That is about basically good bishops and how it's who are those who um, you know they. They, they teach what the magisterium teaches. They live more lives. They live less of service. Um, but that's not enough now. Uh, that's definitely not enough. And they need to, to go through some, if, whoever many there are, I'm afraid there might not be many. Um, they need to go through, those men who are basically good bishops, the ones that we sort of do cartwheels for, so, oh, there's bishop so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. They're not doing what needs to be done. Um, I know it's hard, but they're not. And uh, they need to go they have a new Pentecost. They need, really need to become absolutely on fire um, with love for the Lord and love for the church and just not worry about where the chips fall. Not worry if they're approved by, by the world or by, their, by the bishops or um, their priests or their, their congregation. They need to spend a lot of time 
with the Lord, again, trying to hear his voice and find out what he wants. I'm pretty sure he wants them to really clean up their own diocese first. I mean, my suggestion from the start has been, you know, I mean, you know, you say, if I were a bishop, if I were a bishop, I, I hope that I would, what I'd do is I would talk to my priests and I would say, any of you who are living lives that are not worthy of the Lord in some, I mean, none of us are, but I mean, in some seriously wrong way, you're leading a double life. Your males are having sex with males or males are having sex with women or you're embezzling or you're just drinking your life away um, and you don't intend to stop. Come to me and I will put you a nice package together to exit from the priesthood. And I can leave the high and dry. We're going to try to find you skills that will help you get jobs. But goodbye. Right? And those of you who, after prayer and reflection, realize that you love the priesthood and you failed the priesthood and you don't want to be this way and you want to live a life worthy of the calling that you've been called to, come to me. And we will try to find out a program. I'm not just sending you off to some spa somewhere um, where you'll get babied for months on end at very high expense but we'll do some hard tough stuff that's going to help you find virtue to, to build virtue and and live a life full of grace and those are and i'm i'm going to, i've already been i want to be able to say i've already been through my files and i've seen the accusations that have been made against you and if you're not here in my office with one or the other responses i'm sending out private investigators and i'm finding out whether these accusations are true or not I hope, most, I hope all of you get cleared. But anybody who doesn't get cleared, you're leaving, right? Voluntarily or involuntarily, you're leaving. Now, the bishops don't want to do this. Uh, it, to my mind, I, I mean, maybe I'm just so totally arrogant, but it seems to me this is a pretty clear thing to do, right? You just work in your on your own diocese, and you clean up and say, well, I won't have enough priests to do this, and I won't have enough priests to do that. You say, just do your job. And then, you know, I, I want to say, if it turns out that all we have left is the bishop who says uh, a mass in the local football stadium every Sunday, okay, let's start there. Let's start there. My guess is that you'll have the most beautiful, strong vocations coming forward like an army um, uh, within, within months, right? Uh, it will take a while for us to educate those men and form them, but... I'm willing to wait. I'm willing. I don't want to leave my local parish. I don't want to worship in a stadium. <laughs> but if that's what it comes to, doggone it, let's do it. Let's let's just let's just start from scratch and build the whole thing all over again. Yeah. How much of that? Just just so our our viewers know, how, how much of what you just said is real hyperbole? In, in that, how realistic do you think it could be that a particular diocese might have? Almost no priests left if a bishop really took serious his responsibility this way. Well, again, most of these bishops have inherited that. I mean, they didn't create those situations. We have to be clear about that. Mm -hmm. um, not that a lot of them aren't a part of it. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not taking people off the hook, but I think it's very different from diocese to diocese. All right. Um, Richard Sype and other studies show that at any given time, 50% of priests are not being faithful to their vows of chastity. And believe me, if they're not being faithful to their vows of chastity, they're not being faithful in other, even more important ways. All right. And um, I, I, that's horrible. Uh, but I want to also think it's remarkable in this day and age that 50% are being faithful. It shows it's possible. 
or shows it's possible to bring almost no support from their church, from their culture, all right, and still they're digging down deep and staying close to the Lord and managing that, in this culture, kind of heroic uh, virtue of chastity. So I'm told that in some dioceses there might be as many, it, it sounds preposterous, but what can I say? that These are people on the inside who tell me this stuff, that some studies seem to support it, that up to 90%, all right, of the priests are living immoral, very manifestly immoral lives. In other dioceses, it might be as low as 5%. So it's going to be different from diocese uh, to diocese. And so uh, it might be true in some dioceses and not others. But I, I mean, I've uh, secondhand, you know, secondhand, I've heard people who have heard from bishops themselves who said, if I got rid of all the, the sexually active priests in my diocese, I would, uh, I, I, I'd lose half of my presbyterate. They've said it, right? So if it comes from a bishop's mouth, I think I'm supposing he's been through the files. <laughs> he knows it's not just some speculative thing. I hope, I hope I'm entirely wrong. I hope that I, I am entirely wrong, but I'm afraid the evidence points in the most pessimistic direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, Despite that, despite that knowledge, despite that persecution, or, or, or not persecution, uh, an internal kind of suffering of the church where uh, the body is being sort of eaten by a cancer, it's just unbelievably uh, devouring, uh, you know, the health of the church. Um, what's your outlook? Do you still have hope? And um, what's your message for... Uh, for for faithful Catholics, as as we close out this interview, ah, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. As I I talk with my friends and all of us have tried to figure out scenarios, and we can't we can't even think of a scenario. We can't even think of a scenario that would say, okay, this is the direction. This is what should happen. This this might happen. We can't think of one, as I said, because if the bishops got rid of the bad bishops, there'd probably be just as bad bishops put in. So what are you going to do? I mean, I hope that if there's a handful of good bishops, I hope they do what they can do. And then when the, if, if it should happen that a good bishop is appointed, he will have a model of how it can be done. All right. And just slowly you will get the and I think the I think the lady has to really push for good seminaries. I think the lay boards of seminaries have to demand a very thorough auditing and accounting of what goes on in the seminary. I mean, interviewing everybody who's been in that seminary that's alive for the last 50 years and ask what their experience was, um, blah, 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 what is it now? Just try to get the real truth of the matter. If there's any problems in the seminaries, clean them up because that's where the next generation of uh, priests are coming from. I think all of us, as I said, just have to pray. Uh, We have to, um, I think it is an odd moment for the new, God does strange things. Most Catholics are miserable evangelists. We don't even know how to introduce Jesus or the church into a conversation, but it comes into the conversation now. And Catholics, when it comes into the conversation, you know, people say, how are you feeling? You say, I'm really kind of low today. I read about another parish, another priest, another diocese, another scandal. And then they're going to ask, why do you stay in the church? And then you tell them. And you have an opportunity to be a powerful witness and I've actually heard in some places there's more people than ever that are coming into the church. And I suspect that some of it has to do with the fact that there are those of us who stay 
and we really know what the church is. Again, it's not the local priest. It's not the bishop. It's not the pope, right? It's Jesus' bride and that feeds us, nourishes us, and we're not going anywhere. So I think it's a bizarre, odd opportunity. Yeah, a, a bizarre opportunity to be really powerful um, new engagers in the new evangelization that our enthusiasm for remaining in the church and our will, ability to of our willingness to make a public witness to our staying in this church, which we believe right now is pretty darn corrupt. Um, it's because we believe in Jesus. We can't live without the sacraments. And we want to convince others that their lives will improve greatly if they accept the invitation that the church, <laughs> Church Triumphant, offers. Great. So let me, last uh, last thought here. Um, one of the things that uh, has been coming up in, in a lot of the uh, interviews that I've had about people who deal with such things, with these difficult things in the church, has been uh, the role of Our Lady in all of this. Um, and uh, how has uh, Our Lady affected you in your life and in dealing with this situation specifically? Well, I certainly love Our Lady and trying to be more and more dedicated to um, saying the rosary and asking for her help and her guidance um, in whatever needs to be done. And again, loving her priests, uh, loving the, the ones that we believe are good uh, and trying to support them and realize that they're not under a cloud of suspicion and we love what they're doing. Uh, Our Lady is at the heart of everything. I mean, you know, <laughs> do what he tells you. Uh, go to Mary first and do what he tells you. I think that's that's the formula for things. Um I've always found that when I pray to Mary, she kind of answers my novenas before I'm done. If I pray to God the Father, who is all about God the Father, um, he practices brinkmanship. He takes me right up to the moment of complete desperation and then answers something in some spectacularly wonderful way. So it depends on what sort of thrill I'm wanting, <laughs> who I go to. But... Um, yeah, I think that one thing that is, again, as we become more prayerful, we start to see uh, the, how the supernatural works. Again, you see media like yours and others who have been um, vilified and ignored and dismissed. Um, and they're looking for any little misstep you might take to just uh, just brush you aside and say, everything you say is false. You make some misstep. And I want to say, there's not any media on the face of the earth I trust more than some of the Catholic media. Um, you know that someone's ready to, to um, put a knife in your back the minute they get. Uh, so you're trying, you're being hypervigilant. But in this kind of um, work, as you know, you're dealing a lot with rumors and innuendos. And Richard Sipes said, that's all you're going to get. He said that this is not the kind of um, crime of sexual abuse that's going to have the kind of evidence that you want for other crimes. He said the most important evidence, honestly, is a person's willingness to come forward about it because it's tremendously painful and embarrassing and um, self-incriminating, though there's no self-incrimination really, that's how you feel. Uh, and the fact that willing, people are willing to come forward about this is in itself powerful um, evidence of, of, a, of a misconduct. And so you're dealing with the messiest kind of stuff that's very hard to, uh, to prove. I'm not certain where he's going with all of this, but it has something to do with um, 
What does that have to do with Henry John Henry Mendel? Yeah, no, just uh, just coming back to Our Lady. Um, just for for me personally, it's been um, it's sort of an abandonment of uh, as you were saying earlier on in the in the show. You were saying that uh, you know you're you're relying more on prayer than on intellect now, and and more on uh, sort of contemplation. I think the answer with regard to these toughest of questions, probably the worst crisis ever in, in the history of the church, we we have um, the words of Our Lady of Fatima and of the, you know, the, the encouragement that we got in 1917, in the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. I think, um, you know... Uh, I always come at it as a, as a little child bef- with my mother. Um, and for me, that's the easiest uh, way of dealing with all these things. As a little child, you don't get often what's going on in the situation. You don't know how to deal with it. But you can run to your mother and know that she can deal with it. And uh, sometimes, you, you know, if, if the situation's really, really bad, she hides you in her, in her mantle or in her skirt, you know. <laughs> um, and so you don't even have to look at it. You just sort of run to her. It's where I've taken a lot of solace. And, um, yeah, it's, it's been for me a great grace. You, you have to be under enormous attack um, for the good that you're doing. And, and you see the, um, the darkest places and you know how hard it is to uh, to bring that forward. And I think, uh, yes, running to our mother and, and uh, cuddling in her mantle is extremely important. And I want to say that anybody, I talked to a very good Catholic friend this weekend, and she didn't know a lot. She didn't know much about this at all. She's not, she's, she's a mother of many. She's a teacher. She didn't know much. And she said, uh, and I said, so no, if you want to know about it, you should do X. And she said, I don't want to know about it. And I said, fine. <laughs> I said, that really is fine. What you're doing is fine. And I want to say anybody who's, um, torn up by this or is finding themselves becoming depressed or finding themselves again thinking of leaving the church stop stop reading about this stuff stop informing yourself just let the others who have been given some special assignment by the lord uh to do this and do your daily duties do them faithfully pray for the church and don't let it um you know get you down as you said go to your mother and let your mother raise your hopes. I have again friends who have, have recommitted themselves to saying the rosary every day, and they are finding a, a peace and a joy in their system that they haven't felt possibly ever. Mary is right here ready to console us. She knows her son is in charge. She knows the Holy Spirit is doing what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do. She knows that God the Father is uh, right, in the, <laughs> right in the middle of all of this, knows just what's going on, knows the conclusion of all this, and uh, simply wants us, as always, to have our faith deepened. So I think you're right. If nothing else, just go to Mary. In fact, go there first. Professor Dr. Janet Smith, thank you so very much for being with us here on LifeSite News' John Henry Weston Show. And uh, might I see, I see in you, in your fierce heart fighting for the church and for her children, uh, the heart of Mary that also fights for her children. May God bless you. That's very kind. Thank you.